Yo, what's up, everybody? Today's guest is Sam Lesson, and I'm really excited to bring you our conversation with him. So Sam sold his first company to Facebook. Uh, he now runs a venture fund called Slow Ventures. <laughs> his Twitter his Twitter's pretty, he's got some hot takes, so I recommend you check out his Twitter. And uh, he runs Slow Ventures as well as a company called Fin Analytics. He was one of the first investors in a company called Venmo. You may have heard of it. And uh, he now runs uh, Fin Analytics with his co-founder from Venmo. Um, he's invested in companies like Siftery, Masterclass, and the list goes on. And so, you know, we're a distributed company and we're headquartered in Nashville, Tennessee. So it's not often we get to talk to people that are really at the at the height of the game uh, when it comes to technology startups. So really enjoyed this conversation, learned a lot, and I'm confident you guys will too. Oh, and uh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the fact that our company just launched the ability for other companies to hire full-time devs on the platform. So we've been operating for a few years, but we've mainly focused on you know, vetting devs, vetting companies, and connecting them for contract and consulting positions, right? But we just expanded our focus to full-time roles. You know, the world is going remote. It's not just contract positions. It's full-time. And a lot of my friends from San Francisco are moving to Nashville. You know, look, this is something that I'm super happy with. I wanted to do it for the last few years, and I'm excited that we're finally doing it. So if you're hiring for a full-time role, you know anybody is hiring for full-time um, engineering, sort of software development positions, send them our way. You know, we'd love to, to win their business and get some awesome devs. So, okay, enjoy. Why don't you why don't you tell us a little bit about like how you got interested in let's say technology entrepreneurship like what did you do before your first startup that you sold to Facebook? Yeah, so I was always very interested in it. I mean, I, I honestly have to credit my father a lot. You know, he was kind of one of these guys in the in the nineties who like saw the internet and thought it was the most amazing thing he'd ever seen and kind of indoctrinated me on that um, mm. from a young age. And so for me, it was kind of obvious growing up that. Um, we were at kind of one of the great moments of discontinuity in human history. And that people, the, everyone kind of, the internet was amazing, but it was even more amazing than people realized and even more impactful than people realized. So I did do a, a brief detour in my life through Bain & Company uh, after college, which was uh, historic. I, I think I learned a lot. It was a cool thing. I wouldn't do it again, um, is what I would say. Um, and then kind of quickly found my way back into the tech world where, again, I think there's just there was then and continues to be now like incredibly exciting and important and kind of crazy things going on right you talk about yeah. what to define humanity for the next hundred years <laughs> totally <laughs> if not longer yeah totally so you went to harvard did you study computer science or not really no i i, I studied uh my, the program i did at harvard was social studies which is a mixture of history and economics and a few cool. things you know i grew up in high school and even before with my dad like programming some but i was never serious about it um so you know i i've always been um, you know, obviously around computers and did a little programming, but it was never something I studied super seriously, um, you know, totally. the way obviously a lot of people do. Totally. It's it's really fashionable these days, I think, to suggest that kids take like a technical education or a computer science education. Uh, but I also studied like liberal arts in school. I went to the Harvard of Boston, BU. Ah. So. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. I haven't heard that one. Yeah. I mean, I, look, to be clear, I think that um, learning to code and skills like that are actually awesome. And like, I did something really funny you might appreciate, which is when I left Facebook and I was VP of product there when there was only, I guess, two other VPs of product, you know, wow. at a very, very senior level. And so, and I went, you know what I did is I went to a coding boot camp. 
because I hadn't really coded. I mean, I, I never was a serious coder, but I never, I hadn't really coded at all in years. And the technology had changed a bunch. And so it was very funny because you go into one of these coding boot camps and you're working alongside a bunch of pretty young kids who were like, all they want is to get a job at like Facebook or whatever. And they could not understand why I had left, you know, a very senior job at Facebook and then was doing the coding bootcamp. Um, so I think technical skills are actually really important and awesome, both because it allows you to like prototype on your own. It's important stuff to understand. But, you know, we live at a time where the internet and technology is changing everything, right? Like right. literally to the core of our society. Like we're having this podcast in a hell of a week, right? And like, right. I think that it's important from a liberal arts perspective and a philosophy and an economics perspective to have some appreciation on the flip side of the context in which you're working and what you're building. Um, mm. To your point, I think you need to be able to go up and down the whole stack, not just mm. the technical stack right. uh, when you're out building stuff, if that makes sense. Um, right. Development becomes more ubiquitous and maybe even more commoditized. Like the skill is actually in making it all work together rather than just building the building the software. I think that's true. But again, like I, I, I it's funny because like I am a liberal arts guy by background, but man, I appreciate hard skills, right? The reality yep. is, is like there's so many smart people running around with great ideas and they don't know how to execute them and they don't know how, and the beauty of coding and the beauty of being an engineer is the freedom to not need anyone else and just start figuring stuff out and you learn by tinkering. So I, I, I thematically agree with you, but specifically I'd say that being an amazing software engineer and spending time on that is, is, is highly worth it. Uh, and it's something I do for fun. Like even like literally yesterday, like I got frustrated with a contact solution I had. And so I'm like scripting a, a different approach and like, I, you know, I like That's my cool. ability to do that. Cool. I, and I mean, like thinking about information in the context of computer science, I think is a powerful framework. For sure. Like the models mm -hmm. that you get from computer science are really useful. Absolutely. I mean, Shannon, right? Claude Shannon, he's like my personal hero, right? Yeah. Uh, invented a lot of what you can think of as computer science today, I would say. You know, what he wrote is somewhere between math, philosophy, uh, and engineering. And like, I think having grasp of those disciplines and how they intersect is pretty important. Yeah, totally. Okay. So that makes sense. So you studied social sciences, but you had a broad interest in technology just because of the impact it was having on the world. And when you think about context, um, you know, that's probably shaping the context that we all interact. Cool. This generation's technologists are going to define literally the next several centuries of human history for yeah. better and worse. Totally. Even even the government systems that we are probably operating in, right, is going to be a function of, of information science. So cool. Okay, that makes sense. And then so after Facebook, you you became a professional investor or what did you do? What did you do next? I mean, I, I basically when I left Facebook, you know, Facebook's an incredible company. I love them. I love it. I'm a huge fan of it. But I, I just got really big and I really like the early days of things in a lot of ways. And you know, it was, right. it was time. And so when I left, I basically started doing two and a half things. Um, one thing is I've always been an investor. I, you know, I, I put like little tiny baby angel checks, you know, when I was too young to be doing such things, right. Into things like Venmo for one, where I was kind of the first investor, but also if you remember back in the day, like MakerBot, right. With yeah. Three printing and all this sort of stuff. So there was an interesting budding New York ecosystem where I had kind of seeded or helped seed some companies even if you remember like Birch Box, which is the first subscription box that actually started in my Dropio office and I gave them their first check. So like I'd always been involved, but That's it was always cool. kind of more, it was more casual. Um, you know, when I left Facebook, I did start, we kind of, two, a few friends and I started scaling up a fund called Slow Ventures, which it had kind of been like a friendly thing, just a few friends. And it was almost like a little club and we started turning into a real fund. So now it's about a half a billion dollar AUM. Wow. Uh, early stage fund. We're working on that. Yeah. And the second thing I did 
was I teamed up with my my buddy Andrew Cortina, who started Venmo. Right, he was the, he's the real he and he and Ikram are the real founders of Venmo for sure. Cool. And we started messing around with what I'll call human in the loop systems. So I'm kind of I think that machine learning is really interesting, and you can do really powerful things with it. Obviously. But AI is kind of bullshitty. And the reality right. is, is like, especially back then when we started working on this, everyone was like, AI is going to solve all the world's problems. It's just AI. And like, not really. Like, there's a pretty big gap there. So we got really interested in those types of systems. And we built an assistance service called Thin, right? Where we were basically saying, look, we want to use like human in the loop approach to do like really sophisticated, high end, you know, thoughtful work, you know, book me the right flight, you know, get dinner at the right place, remind me, like the stuff you'd want a super Siri to do. And in the process of that, we actually figured out what has become Thin Analytics, which is a company that's growing really quickly and we're very excited about, which I'll tell you about in a second. Right. Um, and the third thing is like I do a bunch of writing. So I think I love writing. Um, you know, my wife runs a publication called The Information. So I get to write columns there. And like, that's kind of my half my half job, if that makes sense. But the real yeah. thing I spend time, obviously, is like Thin and then investing. No, I saw that, that you consider yourself an intern at that company, at your wife's company, which is funny because you're a GP, you're a co-founder of a scaling company, and then you also have time to write on the side. But I guess they all kind of work together. I think the reality is, the, the dirty reality is at a certain point, all CEOs just want to be interns. <laughs> uh, oh my gosh i 100 i actually thought about like going to apply to blizzard and just like figuring out how they write game software because i think that's cool i play a ton of computer games so i'm like i would love to but i don't know if i want to see how the sausage is made i feel like maybe that would ruin my love for the for the past time but okay Perhaps. yeah that's cool so yeah. so then maybe talk to talk to us a little bit about how did finn um evolve into finn analytics is it still the same company yeah so when cortina and i started finn we did a thing which you it's kind of a luxury deal to do um but we were both second time entrepreneurs and mm. you know done some notable stuff and so we basically took money and we told our investors we're probably not going to make you any money <laughs> and we're going to go explore and figure out kind of what the biggest opportunities are in the human loop world. And, you know, we kind of spent a, a, some time figuring that out. And what we figured out in the process, I think, is a very, I mean, I'm very excited about it. I think it's one of the bigger ideas in the world, if I do say so myself. But yeah. here's, the basic, here's the basic theme, which is when you start putting humans into systems, right, and that could be doing back office, customer service, really anything, sales, marketing, also engineering, lawyers, yeah. doctors, you name it you lose measurements, right? So if you're from a computer science background or you like work in a big social app or whatever, you're used to having incredible data. I wanna know everything every user is clicking on. I wanna know how all the millions of machines in our fleet are performing and where to performance tune them. Like it's a very data-driven activity. The second you put humans in the loop, you're like, well, then the human did something. I have no idea what they did, right? And then you have no idea how to optimize it, right? Mm. And so like if you're in the technical world, you have things like new relic, et cetera. But we got super frustrated from our background being like, look, we want to build better and better systems and keep optimizing, but we don't actually know exactly what the people are doing. Mm. And so we can't optimize it. Mm. So what Fin Analytics was this direct us solving our own problems where we basically started saying, okay, how do we instrument literally down into the click and scroll the, how people are completing work and like, what are the inputs to doing that? And th there's a bunch of cool stuff going on in the world that makes this possible in a way that was never possible before. Right. You know, one is the browser. Like the reality is a super hard instrument at a super low level without some standard system, right? That everything's being piped through. And in case it turns out the DOM and like kind of what's going on in the browser has been a super big boost. You need a ton of data, it's super expensive or it used to be. Like there's all these things that are making it possible as work moves into the browser and becomes digitized in part. Uh, and the third is you need like things like CRMs. Like I need to know, like people are like, 
it's fine to know someone spent this much time in Slack or whatever, but like that doesn't mean anything. Like I need right. to know what they were working on. And like the reality right. is as systems of record, like anything from like a, a, a Zendesk to a Salesforce to an Asana become more standard, you can start doing really cool stuff with that. So there's this confluence of things going on where all of a sudden human knowledge work starts to get measurable. And when you start measuring human knowledge work, you find these huge opportunities to improve people, process, and tools is the way we look at it. So people being like, I want better coaching. Like, imagine going to a job where you've got no feedback ever. Mm. It's the worst, right? Mm. Like, where we are right now is most people maybe get quarterly feedback. Right. What you really want is actionable, like, real-time feedback on what you're doing and how to improve based on real data and how your coworkers are doing things. Right. Like, same thing with process. Someone's like, to do this thing, you should do these steps. Well, it's like, is that the best practice? Did someone else figure out something better? Like, how do we make that kind of more shareable? Uh, and then tools. It's like, you just want to always improve your tools. And so you have to understand how people are actually using them, right? In mm. order to figure that out. So I, I really believe that, like, if you think about where we are in history and what's going to happen next, you know, think about what happened in manufacturing. It's like all productivity comes from the cycle of measuring things and optimizing them and rinsing and repeating and then you look at knowledge work and there's nothing, right? Like all the stuff we do every day, no one's giving, has that. And so I think building that instrumentation layer effectively and then starting to help optimize systems like that at that level is like, it's incredibly exciting. I think it'll be incredibly important for the future of kind of how we work. So that's been a really big mission of mine. It's going really well. Like we, you know, we, um, we have some really, really great customers that are big, um, you know, a lot of unicorns whose names you'd, you'd know. Um, right. And like, we keep growing as people kind of figure this out and realize how big a deal it is um, to have this. That's awesome. So what would be maybe um, a couple examples of applications? So customer service? Think customer know. service. Like, I mean, that's the easiest one to think about. Right. A lot of them. Like in customer service or something request comes in, inevitably, you know, it's going to go to one of 10,000 customer service agents around the globe, right? Depending on the company. Right. They're going to pick up that task. They have something like a SOP, like a standard operating procedure, what they're supposed to do. They might not do it. The tools right. might be broken because they frequently are, right? Some, like there's, there's a thousand variants. And so you're getting, you know, I don't know, your DoorDash order is cold or like whatever. And you know how to do that possibly. Using the data first approach where you say, okay, let's measure exactly how everyone's doing all these things build out understand exactly what good product like what the most productive highest you know employee i'm sorry highest customer satisfaction scores where do they come from and then how do we replicate it where do they get which tools are broken you know on customer service someone's like typing and there's like a pause and you're like what do you where to go what's going on <laughs> yeah. you suck. half the time half the time it's like look these systems are super slow like some some resources slow to load and it's like that adds up that creates bad customer experiences etc so you can go deeper on this but like that's a really simple way to think about it right um but really if you think about it, anything's like this like lawyers yeah. are the same thing right like i need this contract done like how okay how did you review it like you know what systems are you using like who the, who's the the best in the world at reviewing ndas like how do right. they do it right and then how do we kind of learn from that and apply it out to everyone else right and you can even think about applications maybe in sales where you know, sure. you can be held to a quota, but you're not sure how long you need to spend on an email with a specific opportunity, yeah. how the best performers even in the organization are doing that, which would be super instructive. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. So cool. I, mean, that, I think actually that's another great thing to keep to call out, which is the worst thing in the world I've always found is someone measures you purely on your outputs, but those outputs are out of your control. Yeah. Right. So if someone's like, you have to do this, you know, the customer always has to be happy or like this has to happen, but 
the inputs to that actually happening are there's a randomization factor to them or like there are input you need tools that don't exist it's like the worst feeling right mm. and so the more you get to complete data where you understand exactly what's happening you're not just looking oh you know this task took too long it's like well did it like why right like yeah. you know is this it that that creates a much healthier more open culture rather than like what normally happens again customer service is like the engineers all blame the operations people Right. They say, oh, you know, these people are terrible or whatever. The operations people are all super frustrated with the engineers. So like these guys don't know that this is broken and the communication breaks down. So the more you can be like, look, here's the data. Let's just like knock these problems off, the better. Yeah, totally. So do you think that this approach is antithetical or or let's say in opposition to you know, the sort of Netflix or Spotify approach of, hey, we're not, or maybe Valve is a good example. You know, we're not going to tell you what to work on or how to do it. The only thing that matters is you do it well. And they don't really define what well is. Is that like, because that's a, that seems to be a popular management methodology, right? Work on what you want and we hire, we make sure to hire good people and they'll tell us what to do. So a few, a few thoughts on that. One is, um, that only works at the richest companies in the world. Right? You can afford a lot. So yeah, if you work in a company where like, you're so rich and it's yeah. making so much money that you actually don't even care if 99% of your employees are completely unproductive, so long as 1% of them deliver great outcomes, mm. fine, I can understand that. That's a rational model. But that's not how business really works. That might be good for some people, but I think for a lot of people in the world, if you're just like, welcome, here's a job, you get no definition of what to work on or how to create value. Like, I mean, I think a lot of people will be very unhappy in those cultures. And so yeah. like, you you want definition and goals and milestones. So look, I mean, there's a th- there have always been experiments in management, there'll be more, but like my sense is, is that that kind of mentality, while it's really great for recruiting a certain type of person, an engineer in like a certain environment, is going to be always a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of the world. And frankly, I'm not even sure how long that stuff even lasts. Like at some point, you know, you kind of say like, wait a minute, like if 80% of my employees are less productive than they should be and managers can't organize big projects because everyone just does what they want. And again, I'm obviously paraphrasing these things. I'm, no, not, it's I'm a, not sold. It's, it's a fair point because how many of those businesses that have these types of management models just have stumbled into a moat that wouldn't exist in other industries or some you know, uh, some product, nobody else besides Valve makes Steam as a lot of your games. And so they can just ride that forever. Well, it's that, it's that and being in a position where, again, you can hire because you're so rich. All right. 10,000 people and you actually don't care if 9,900 of them are not productive so long as someone produces a hit. Right. right. And like yeah. a really important insight. And that does happen, but it's rare. Yeah. Right? And I also, I feel for those 9,900 people, like, do you really want to spend your time in life working where like you've been given so little direction, you do whatever and everyone secretly knows that what you're doing is worthless. Like that's a terrible, like, you know what I mean? Like that's not, I don't think that's as positive a culture as some people might think. (laughs) Yeah. That's a great point. Um, So does your, like, how does your work at Finn maybe inform your decision-making as a, as an investor and vice versa? Like how did the two and a half roles that you have kind of play with? Yeah. I mean, you know, you, you get the sense I'm a generalist and I'm a cross pollinator. Like that's, I like that mentality. And, you know, when you're a generalist, there are strengths and weaknesses. Um, the weakness of being a generalist is you're never the best in the world at anything, right? Like there's always someone who's better, who's a specialist eventually. 
the benefit is you hopefully can see patterns that other people can't or start making connections because you're just being broader. Like you're seeing more different stuff. And so mm. when you say like, how does being an operator at Finn influence like, you know, decisions or investment decisions? It's like, look, one thing is, I think it's really easy to say that operating is hard, right? Or like understand what success in that. The reality is it's, I think you have to experience it yourself on a continuous basis to really get how insanely difficult it is and where the problems are. And so there, there are all sorts of specific ways in which I think having an operator or someone who's actively operating as an investor are helpful. Like, you know, someone the other day is like, I'm having a problem doing like this recruiting. I'm like, I'm literally having exactly the same problem. Let me tell you where I am and trying to solve it for myself. And like, so there is some cross pollination to that, but I think it's also just an appreciation for like how incredibly hard this stuff is. And hopefully some sense of, who runs through the walls and who doesn't. Um, yeah. You know, I think on the flip side, if you're an operator and you're just building a company, it is so easy to miss the forest for the trees, mm-hmm. right? You get so obsessed with what you're doing and whatever the metric is you set up, whatever, that you might even achieve it. But by the time you achieve it, it's the wrong goal, right? right. So I think being an investor forces you to be a little bit broad and see what else is happening in the world. And so, again, I, look, everyone will always justify their own life decisions. Um, but from my perspective, I think that being a real operator, having built companies and then ideally being in it yourself just makes you a better investor and more empathetic with the teams you're working with and like a whole bunch of ways and vice versa. I think like the scariest thing for most early stage founders is you just get sucked into your vortex and you completely miss the game, right? Yeah. It's not like, it's not that you miss actually, you just miss the game. Right. And I think right. kind of having some, a toehold in investing helps you with that and not make those mistakes. Yeah. That's, that's really powerfully put. <laughs> Um, you know, you mentioned before we started uh, recording that uh, Fin Analytics was hiring engineers. You know, do you have a public jobs page or anything like that where people can go to? You know, we do somewhere. You can go to fin.com. And I think there's a, a link there to, to our job stuff. But yeah, I mean, at a high level, like Fin's going great. And like, I think it's a really big problem. Like, I think this is one of those things that's sneaky big and sneaky important. Right. Which is my favorite, right? Because you're like, what are you doing? You're like, you're putting a plug in on customer service agents and measuring their click stream. That on the surface sounds pretty boring, right? For most people, but the deeper thing we're working on, right? Which is, oh my God, how do you instrument knowledge work and help people work better and have better jobs and be more efficient? I think is like a massive platform business that will happen. I'd like to win it, but I'm pretty sure it's going to happen in the next bunch of years. And so we're very excited about that opportunity. Cool. Yeah, we'll we'll have your socials and where they can go and apply or just kind of check out your company yeah. in the show notes. Do you want to you want to share the URL for Slow Ventures? We can also link that. Yeah, maybe. it's 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 just slow s l o w dot c o and then fin is just f i n dot com. Awesome. Yeah, All right, Sam. Thank you so much for your hey, time. It's this been is a real fun. Pleasure. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Cheers, dude. Cheers. Hey, thanks for checking out the Frontier Podcast, produced by Gun.io. We're the hiring platform companies use to find the best talent in software development. If you enjoyed the show and want to learn more about how to hire or work with us, head over to gun.io to get in touch. Thanks for listening to the Frontier podcast produced by gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.